Welcome to episode 10 of the Twisted Conservative Podcast. Hello everyone, this is your host Jason Vaughn, the Twisted Conservative. Thank you for joining me. Made it all the way to episode 10 for the Twisted Conservative Podcast. For those of you that have listened to every episode... I truly appreciate it, especially thank you those of you that are sharing uh, this information with your friends. Uh, today, my guest is going to be John Siegel of Texas Right to Life. He has been a guest before and was not planning on having him on again this soon, but uh, specifically having him on because of uh, the Brittany Maynard case and the uh, so-called death with dignity slash assist, physician assisted suicide uh, case that occurred last month wanted to have him on as he's getting his master's in uh, bioethics and has a lot to say on this uh, type of topic and on some other issues that relate to it. It's going to be a very hard topic, but I think it's very uh, useful and something that we really need to consider in how our uh, those of us that are pro-life what our stance truly is on this and other issues like it. Uh, some other news in Texas going on. Wanted to let you know, in case you have not heard, that Letitia Van de Pute, who ran for lieutenant governor, she was the Democrat candidate for lieutenant governor. She was also the one that helped start the riots last uh, summer in 2013 for the HB2 uh, pro-life omnibus bill debate. Um, she has resigned her seat in the Senate as she is running for the mayor of San Antonio and so those of you in San Antonio please try to find a good candidate uh, to support and we'll see how that goes that election is going to be in May a lot of times conservatives have a tendency to ignore uh, issues like that and they will uh, municipal elections where they really have a lot of effect though and can really build up especially in larger cities like that so uh, if you want to know more about municipal elections go back to episode two and listen to uh, my episode with Aaron Harris on municipal elections I also wanted to talk briefly about Ferguson um, those of you that do not know I lived in st. Louis for about five years I've been to Ferguson before it's a nice suburb or it was a nice suburb and sadly it's pretty much been destroyed now last night the verdict came in uh, not guilty for an indictment I'm sorry no charges for an indictment uh, if you don't know how an in, a grand jury works they pretty much see if there's enough evidence to even go to trial and this was a pretty big grand jury uh, they even had I mean it was 25 days they had over 60 witnesses so Apparently, after all of that, there did not seem to be enough evidence to go to trial for Officer Darren Wilson, who was uh, who they uh, wanted to charge with Michael Brown's um, death, and, and, and wrongful death in, in that shooting. This is the truth of the matter. I have no idea what happened that day. You don't either. We have some eyewitness accounts. We have some testimonies. But ultimately, we don't know. And to make a hard reaction either way, in defense of the officer or in defense of Michael Brown, is probably unwise. 
And so I'll just leave it with this. Ferguson is hurting. One man is dead. One man is in ruins. And a city is destroyed. There's no justice here. There's no justice for anyone in this instance. The city is ruined and in tatters. Many small business owners have lost their livelihoods at a time when they desperately needed to at Christmas time. So be in prayer for the city of Ferguson and for the city of St. Louis. You know, the, I've said it before, the only thing that will end this type of racial tension and these types of crimes and riots and tension is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope we ultimately have. We won't find it in riots. We won't find it in new laws. We will find our hope solely in Christ. So please be in prayer for the people of Ferguson. As I said, today's episode is going to be a little bit harder, as it is a very difficult subject, but one that I think is needed. After you listen, please uh, make sure you tweet and join the conversation at Jason Vaughn, at J-A-S-O-N-V-A-U-G-H-N. That's at Jason Vaughn, J-A-S-O-N-V-A-U-G-H-N. And you can email me at Jason at txprolife.org I hope to hear from you soon if you have any feedback please continue to listen share and have a wonderful Thanksgiving we'll be back in uh, December we'll, we'll start talking about upcoming legislation for the 84th session of the Texas legislature Hey everyone, uh, as I mentioned last week, my guest today is John Segoe of Texas Right to Life. And I asked John on specifically for this topic of uh, Brittany Maynard and um, assisted suicide and suicide in general, because he's actually currently getting his master's in bioethics and uh, studying this and many other topics like this a lot more than I have. If you've not followed Pro-Life Texas uh, recently, you'll, or if you have, you'll notice that a about three weeks ago, right after uh, Brittany Maynard, who uh, had uh, who had cancer and, and had assisted suicide uh, uh, at the end of October, um, you'll, you'll notice I really kind of went off on this because she was being made out to be a hero by a lot of the media and a lot of uh, different celebrities. And, and I'm sorry, I just don't think someone that spends their last days uh, – telling other people to commit suicide and that that's the only way to die with dignity is really is is a hero that sounds more like a villain in my book and I, and I feel very sorry for her I mean I'm sure she was in pain uh, she seemed to be able to do quite a few interviews and, and get a lot done in her last days who knows what she could have accomplished if she hadn't um, had assisted suicide but uh, John so why don't you just uh, Go into in, into that. Tell us you probably followed that story a little bit more than I did. Know a little bit more about it. I want you to give us an overview of it, and then just uh, the bioethics and and the um, morality of everything that kind of went on there. Yeah, thanks, Jason, for having me. It's um, 
uh, honor to be back back here with you. And yeah, this is a serious issue. Um, this is something that even uh, the pro-life community is, um, I feel like, a little bit behind the conversation. And you could see just by how different people were reacting and interacting on Twitter and Facebook, um, even, you know, pro-lifers who believe in restoring justice for pregnant women and preborn children, they, they really didn't know how to handle this one. And uh, some of them were, knew it was wrong but not exactly sure why, and then some were just kind of, um, you know, not, not really sure how to, how to even think about it. So I think it's an absolutely uh, critical, critical issue, and um, I, I do think that uh, we need to have, you know, some good conversations about what's going on here. You know, the case generally, uh, Brittany Maynard, it's, I mean, it's a tragic case. Um, and, you know, in those, in those days uh, leading up to her death, uh, I think that we really needed, uh, you know, to, to pray for her and really needed to, to show compassion as well for her just because she was facing something very dramatic. You know, she was t- facing a diagnosis of having brain cancer and um, giving a really, you know, bleak kind of outlook as to what this, uh, what kind of her, her medical treatment would be able to accomplish uh, in the, the end, uh, last steps of her life. So it is absolutely tragic. She was 29 years old. Um, she did have uh, brain cancer, and she and, um, uh, well, she, yeah, she, she moved actually to Oregon, the state of Oregon, to make use of their uh, law that, has legalized uh, physician-assisted suicide, and uh, it's called the Death with Dignity Act. And, um, you know, and this is not uncommon. A lot of people are moving to the few states that have legalized um, physician-assisted suicide uh, to take, to, you know, to actually use this law. Um, the thing that was unique is that she, as you mentioned, Jason, she was made to be kind of a poster case um, and to really got uh, in the limelight of representing this movement. And, you know, this movement is uh, very, um, I mean, it, it is a movement. It is a very uh, kind of healthy movement that's trying to win other states as well to pass similar legislation that allows someone to go to there and legally, um, uh, usually legally directly end their life. And um, that's, you know, and so there is a movement here, and what I think happened with Brittany Maynard is they used her story, which is a very compelling story. She was very articulate, and she was extremely brave to go and make herself kind of um, this kind of public figure and be the face of this movement. The, you know, the, the difficulty is that this movement has had PR problems in the past. Um, before Brittany Maynard, the only name associated with the, um, PA, the physician-assisted suicide movement was Dr. Kevorkian. And even if you don't know who Dr. Kevorkian actually was, you, you know, everybody gets the reference that it's a bad thing, you know, that it's a mad scientist implication. Um, so this was a big, a big move for the, the organization Compassion and Choices that's promoting uh, PAS, uh, physician-assisted suicide, in the States. And um, they used her as a, they're, they're the premier advocates for euthanasia and assisted suicide. And they did a very good job of making um, Mrs. Maynard's uh, story very public. 
And at the time, we were really concerned uh, that, you know, as she was becoming a commercial for this ideology, that, um, you know, she, she would kind of got to a point where it wasn't her decision uh, to end her life and that there would have been peer pressure for her to end her life even if she changed her mind. You know, once she became this faith, um, we were afraid If I remember that. correctly, uh, just on the 29th or something, uh, the news story kind of came out that she had changed her mind, didn't it? Was yeah, that was, was one of the concerns. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the concerning things is that she appeared to have some doubts about ending her life, and she passed the day that she originally uh, announced would be um, the day that she ends her life, and that day, day passed, and she said it wasn't right yet. Um, but you know, there was so much publicity, and she was you know kind of being pushed into the, the spotlight there that, you know, it, she would have been letting a movement down if she did not do it. And, um, well, I, you know, personally, just from a moral perspective of her generally, that seemed to be very difficult um, position to put her in is uh, if she doesn't go through with it, what does that say? So I think there were some reasons to be afraid for her personally, but this is kind of, it's not just about Brittany Maynard. I mean, this is, um, the the very similar pressure that we can anticipate she might have had, um, we can see that other individuals in Oregon and other, uh, you know, in Oregon and Washington, um, in these states that where it is legal, uh, that it would they would feel the pressure too, but not from a spotlight perspective, but from a society perspective that you know once uh, this right was available, it would become a duty, you know, a, a forced kind of duty that patients, yeah. especially, especially those like who are terminally ill, um, you know, would be more susceptible to that pressure, that this is what's expected of them, and it's almost selfish for them not to end their life um, whenever they would be taking up a medical bed, taking up their loved one's time to care for them, taking up, you know, resources. Um, and, and so what is being hailed as kind of a, a human right could easily become a duty, and uh, a yeah. forced kind of decision. A so burden. One of the reasons with her, yeah. Especially with, I think this is one of the concerns for many of us, especially with Obamacare and the more you centralize health care, you know, there's only so much health care that can go around. There's only so much of a budget that you have. If, if you're older, you're, you know, you're going to die, you know, in three months anyway. Why not go and take a few pills and end it now kind of concept and, and not waste those millions of dollars in health care? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I think um, it, it is, and it's this whole kind of uh, notion of. Well, I mean, there's several different kind of ethical issues here, but um, you know, and, and so there's the arguments that people make for legalizing um, assisted suicide, but what I'm, I'm, you know, so but thinking about the patient, you know, this is usually put in terms of. Uh, you know, pro-patient, you know, for her. She was the one who would suffer. She was the one who was scared of her medical future. Um, you know, and, and the thing is that it's very rare, and one thing that I want to kind of want us to think about is it's very rare for our society to support suicidal intent. You know, usually a request for suicide is considered a cry for help. It's considered a need for counseling assistance, or even um, to actually screen for clinical depression. 
Um, you know, if you have yep. a patient who shows up in a hospital, you know, with a suicidal intent saying that they want to end their life, that's not treated as if it's a rational uh, kind of uh, patient, autonom- um, you know, patient autonomy and kind of a rational decision that that patient's making. It's actually treated as uh, a symptom of something deeper, yeah. whether it's clinical, uh, clinical depression or if it's just a chemical imbalance or, you know, something else or if, you know, they need more information and more counseling on how to deal with the medical con- condition. But in this case, you, like you said, we hail it as, um, you know, a- as a virtue. And, and I think that's really, really dangerous because and there's been several studies about this, how suicidal intent is typically transient. It's typically, you know, temporary. Um, you know, we see that there's studies that show, you know, out of individuals who attempt suicide and are stopped, less than 4% of those individuals go on and kill themselves in the next five years. Um, and then less than 11% go on and, kill and uh, commit suicide within the next 35 years. 35 years. So, you know, thinking about someone who tries to kill themselves, you know, they have suicidal intent, they're, you know, thinking about ending their life. It's not as if it's a sustained, reasonable conclusion that they, you know, conclusion they've come to. It's actually very transient, and they eventually they change their mind and don't, you know, don't attempt again to kill themselves. And that's, that study showed less than 4% within the next five years, and then kind of looking at a huge time period of the rest of their life, 35 years, um, you know, less than 11%. So it's a very transient thing, and we shouldn't take kind of one expression of suicidal intent as the final decision that this patient, you know, that we should help this patient make. Uh, yeah, that, nobody, a huge, a huge deal. Yeah, it's, nobody really went around saying how brave and how, and, you know, how dignified Robin Williams' suicide was. And I, I love Robin Williams. I mean, I, uh, you know, I thought he was at one of his peak performances on his TV show even last year and just, uh, you know, didn't know him personally, obviously, don't know what kind of, uh, a lot of times those genius comedic minds have a lot of pain. So why why do we not go, well, good for him for ending his pain, his uh, his depression or ending his pain there? I mean, nobody does that when you when you have that. But you but if you're facing this, and, and I think most of us know mental pain, mental anguish can be just as bad if not worse than physical pain often. So why why not... Uh, why do we not say suicide is okay in these instances uh, for for guys like Robin Williams, and we're going to cheer him on, but we we make a hero out of of, of a physician assisted suicide? Yeah, and the main difference that you know um, that your opponents will bring up, Jason, is that uh, she was facing a terminal illness. You know, she had a diagnosed medical experts telling her of how much longer she had to live, whereas you know, to our knowledge, Robin Williams didn't have that. So, um, but the, you know, so that's kind of the point that they make is, oh, it's completely different. You know, she had this, this diagnosis, but, you know, the, the, the issue and kind of my response to that point is that, um, you know, we see that terminate, terminally ill patients who desire death and have suicidal intent um, are usually depressed and that that depression is treatable. It's not, um, you know, it's not just being in a bad mood. It's not just being blue over, you know, a hard medical condition. 
it's actual clinical depression that needs to be treated. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there are studies that show that, um, you know, 24% of individuals facing uh, terminally, uh, yeah, terminal illness uh, have desire, had suicidal intent and um, that they were clinically depressed and that that suicidal intent from the medical experts was a symptom of this clinical depression. And then they went on and tested them and found, you know, that um, almost a quarter of those terminally ill patients who, uh, you know, were actually, you know, diagnosable and, and their clinical depression is untreated. So, again, this suicidal intent is not a normal, rational conclusion, if we, especially for those who are vulnerable medically. Um, we need to, as a society, we need to be committed to caring for them, treating this additional illness of, of clinical depression rather than legalizing them to act on that suicidal intent. And what's the, and I'm going to ask you this, what's your opinion on the difference between deciding not to take a certain treatment to extend your life and deciding and, and, and physician-assisted suicide? Because I think there's, I think that should be considered a pretty big difference personally, but I'd love to get your opinion on it. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. This is, um, this is exactly um, kind of at the core of a really important ethical distinction um, that, is often lost on our society when we hear of cases like this uh, because then we think of things that we're familiar with of taking a loved one off a ventilator um, or deciding not to have an additional surgery or, you know, um, having being with a loved one who's making the tough decision not to continue to seek chemo treatment if they have cancer. Um, you know, that, that's a, a completely different situation ethically and uh, the distinction is made between active euthanasia and passive euthanasia. And the active euthanasia is, like it sounds, actively introducing the cause of your death, like Brittany Maynard did when she took a lethal dosage of drugs that caused her death. Um, and passive euthanasia is removing something out of the way to let the cause of death continue. So withdrawing a ventilator or withdraw, you know, not seeking, um, uh, not, not continuing with dialysis. Um, those are, are passive, whereas the active, and, and the distinction is the act itself. There's a lot of overlay. You know, your intention could be the same. Obviously, if you're utilitarian, the end is the same. You know, the patient um, does pass away in, in both cases. Uh, your intentions could be good or bad um, on either one. However, the most, the biggest difference, especially from my kind of position in the, you know, thinking of a public policy standpoint, the biggest distinction is the act itself. What are you technically doing in that act? And that's where the ethical question really has the meat on it is, uh, you know, what is the act itself? Um, The act itself is, you know, Brittany Maynard did not pass away from her terminal illness. She passed away from um, an, uh, a lethal dosage of drugs um, in, and introducing that as the cause. Whereas when you withdraw a ventilator from someone who is having multi-organ failure, for example, you're removing the ventilator and then you're letting that disease uh, have its natural outcome. So you're actually dying by uh, you know, natural, um, natural causes rather than saying, 
you know, this individual is going to die by something which induced him. And I do want to point out that in Brittany Maynard's case, you know, it, there was no question as to how it would end up. You know, there was no question mm-hmm. that she would take the drugs and then maybe she would die um, if, you know, her condition was so bad. Uh, no, it was a guarantee. Whereas when you take someone off of a ventilator, uh, you're seeing if they're strong enough. You know, there are cases when individuals still continue to live. They still continue to breathe on their own. There was a really famous case, the Quinlan case, and uh, they had this long legal battle to withdraw her ventilator. And this was uh, pretty early in the ethics, and so the law wasn't so clear as whether that was a right to withdraw a ventilator from the patient. And there was this long legal battle that she had the legal right to withdraw a ventilator. They finally got that, and they withdrew the ventilator, and she lived 10 more years, even though she had a low level of consciousness. She lived 10 more years breathing on her own. So that's one of the huge, you know, that's a, a very important point, is that you're not guaranteeing the death of the individual that you would draw treatment that you're not sure is uh, benefiting the individual. And then, you know, there's still this question of you're not intending their death. You're intending to let natural causes continue. Um, mm-hmm. And like in the case of the, the Quinlan case, she continued to live. So that was, um, it's, it's a big distinction as to what we're doing technically, you know, whether we're ending the life or whether we're letting the patient die. And in Quinlan's case, um, and some, you know, so many other documented cases where the diagnosis was wrong, the patient is not close to dying. Uh, the, you know, we're not letting her die. We're letting her, you know, her uh, natural, natural situation and kind of her natural causes continue. So um, it's, a, it's a big, and, you know, this is, a, and I'll let, I'll let you jump back in here, Jason. This is the area I'm really interested in because there are substantial differences. Um, and uh, there's even been a case in Texas recently where, uh, a family is pushing for, and they've said that they're going to lobby the legislature to legalize something like what happened in Brittany Maynard's case instead of just the withdrawing treatment like I've mentioned. Yeah, and and, if, and just to be clear, because I think we also had a case like the uh, Terry Schiavo case, uh, there's a difference between withdrawing treatment and withdrawing food and water as well. Um, which is what we, I think we even had a case like that here in Texas, where where you just let someone starve to death, and that's another that's another difference in ethics as well, where that where we would say that is also very uh, that's a terrible decision as well, where you're purposefully starving someone to death. Yeah, no, this is excellent. I'm glad you went there. That's and you're getting more technical, and this is one even that's a little more controversial because. Um, Again, you're, you're getting further down the line where uh, I've seen even some well-intended pro-lifers are not making this important distinction. And, um, but you're absolutely right. Again, kind of what we've already said about the letting die versus introducing the cause of death, when you take food and water away, it's not like, hey, you know, we're going to see if their underlying condition takes them. You're guaranteeing that they're going to die, whereas... Uh, you know, food and water is not a treatment. It's the necessary conditions for us to live. Even you and me, uh, Jason, who are healthy and don't need to be in a hospital, you know, you withdraw our food and water and it's guaranteed we're not going to survive. So it, absolutely, ethically, it's a very different case. Um, and there was, uh, it, and it's kind of this confusion that leads to really heartbreaking, tragic stories, like one that came out of Corpus Christi last year, 
of uh, a toddler who was dehydrated to death um, by her family because she had a bad cognitive, uh, she was uh, severely disabled, and they suffered through this agonizing process of this toddler passing away. She actually took nine days to dehydrate to death, and um, this family suffered through that really bad time, and um, the really heartbreaking time period didn't reconsider the ethics of the decision they had made, but instead are now thinking that we need to legalize active euthanasia, like Brittany Maynard's mm-hmm. case, where we can introduce, and they, would have said, they said it should be legal in, law, in Texas law to introduce the cause of a lethal dosage of drugs to end her life um, instead of having to wait those nine days while she starved to death. And um, I think that... And that's not even an adult making that decision. They actually want it for a parent to be able to do that to a child. Is that correct? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, she was uh, two years old in, in that case. And it's absolutely heartbreaking, the story, but I'm a, the moral of the story was lost um, because, you know, they didn't see how their intentions and the act of what they were doing with the food and water made it an unethical decision. They thought it was an unethical decision because it took too long and it was too mm. uh, emotional, emotionally trying for the family, and they don't want that to happen to other families, whereas, of course, you know, text right to life, we're, we're more focused on the patient. We don't want that kind of injustice to happen on, you know, to occur for the patient. So, yeah. um that was uh, an absolutely heartbreaking story, but, you know, Jason, I think as we continue down with uh, the discussion about healthcare costs, we continue about this kind of vague notion of dignity um, and dying with dignity and, uh, you know, really misunderstanding uh, kind of this suicidal intent issue, these issues are going to pop up more and more, and I hope that pro-lifers can, can really be prudent in how we think about them. You know, I, I said earlier that, that when most people have taken and and I understand the the right response is, is grief um and, and sorrow for for these types of situations. But as I said earlier, part of me was just extremely angry at this. I watched my uh, uh, the Brittany Maynard case because I watched my grandmother die of this. So, you know, I, I was there for those last days where Alzheimer where brain cancer had spread throughout her body and it was it was not um, she actually died the last week of my of my uh, high school um, schooling, and um, the last week I had high school. And they, it was not easy to do, but to then say that even though she fought until the end to say that she if didn't die with dignity, it is kind of mind-boggling to me that um, that the only way to die with dignity is is to is to give up. It seems. I, which I just don't, I don't get that, and I don't also don't get the, these families. You know, if you see someone with a gun to their own head, you try to wrestle the gun away from them. You don't just say, "Okay, go ahead and do it." Mm-hmm. You you try to stop them. So, from the news articles I read, her family is standing around her, supporting this, and I'm like, "How do you not stop the physician? How do you not?" Just do something. I would not have been allowed in the hospital. I would have physically stopped someone from doing this. So what's going through these families' minds, besides, I understand, not wanting to ultimately see their uh, their daughter in, in pain um, at the end, but 
what 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 do you say to these people to to, to folks like that? Because I lost a lot of followers on Pro Life Texas being adamantly against this. Hmm. No, and and I think that's the thing is it is seem like the compassionate answer, um, but the problem is it's a, it's a very twisted uh, version of compassion. You know, as a society, we can offer more to Brittany Maynard than active euthanasia. Uh, you know, we as a society, we're better, we're better than that. Um, and, you know, especially thinking about the scientific side of this, you know, um, for, you know supporting this legislation uh, of the Death of Dignity Act, it, it's not just kind of anti-life. It's, it's actually anti-science because we're saying that we have nothing better. You know, we, as a society, mm. modern medicine, you know, doesn't want to continue to experiment. We don't want to continue to find treatment and, and deal with these problems. We just want to get rid of the patients who these problems, have, you know, um, actually occur to. That's not, that's not pro-science. Pro-science is looking for all that we can do, trying new things, you know, having this push for, you know, dealing with pain. That's a, an argument that's come up uh, is that they're going to be, in, you know, they're going to suffer. They're going to have pain. Well, modern ma- medicine has amazing advancements in palliative care um, to alleviate pain, alleviate different types of pain, um, you know, and there's just a really complex and, and rich kind of medical field of coming up with new solutions to different pains. You know, the answer is not to get rid of these patients with the problems. It's to treat the problem, find better solutions to the problems like pain and, and suffering in these conditions. And, and so I think as a society, we need to be dedicated to that. We need to say we're not going to get rid of these patients and make a law that allows these patients to end their life. We need to give them more hope than that and be dedicated to, to serving them, to treating them, and helping um, society as a whole figure out how we deal with these most vulnerable patients. And uh, I think that's a, a, big, a big theme that the pro-life movement needs to learn uh, is that, you know, it, whenever we let Brittany Maynard or others in, um, do that, we're, we're letting them down. You know, we're not giving them the best mm-hmm. that we have. So I think that's a, a very important point that especially someone who wants to be pro-life and avoid pain and avoid suffering for other humans, um, you know, this is something that we, you know, we don't solve problems by getting rid of those people whom the problems happen to. Yeah, and it just seems to keep continuing on. You know, we started, not, not that suicide is anything new, but we started with, with abortion and now we're at a, a point where we have physician-assisted suicide, and and it's all really go, goes back to the eugenic society that uh, that the founders of Planned Parenthood had in mind and such for, from years ago. But but these ideas that that life is not valuable at a certain point that that life is only valuable if you're a a certain member of society. And, and that's and that's just horrifying. So, what can we do to get back to get back to a um, to get back to a basic understanding of the value of life? What can we do to promote um, to promote life and, and and to discourage suicide? Whether it's in cases like uh, we, Robin Williams, or just in case, or uh, you know, we have a a massive teen suicide rate, um, much higher than it should be. Well, obviously, even one is much higher than it should be, but 
and and then even to physician assisted suicide what is the answer culturally that individuals can start doing and um, even legislatively what can we do from here yeah yeah absolutely so I think generally you know we need to be especially as pro-lifers we need to be really sensitive to you know what what's the, the ethical kind of principle at the at the core of all of this uh, and it's that you know we need to value individual human life um, in in all of the shapes and forms that, that we have it, whether it, it includes the elderly, the terminally ill, um, the disabled, or the depressed. I mean, they're all, you know, human life and human beings are the most valuable thing our society has, and we need to go out of our way to reiterate that, and, and just in little ways that it's being attacked. So, you know, just example, the term quality of life. You know, you, we hear this all the time. Whenever someone has a severe disability or severe um, you know, medical uh, condition, you know, the question is, well, what's their quality of life? That question from the beginning assumes that there are forms of life, types of, of human beings that are living out there, that they have a life that's not worth living. And that is absolutely contrary to the pro-life conviction that all human life is, uh, is worth protecting and absolutely value, invaluable. So, um, you know, that that little things like this that have kind of crept into even some pro-lifers lingo, you know, and even conversations we have um, really degrades human life as a whole. You know, another one is how we talk about persons with disabilities, you know, um, and, and how we think of persons with disabilities. Even if, you know, we say something like, oh, well, I would never want to live like that. Well, what you're saying is that people who do, persons who do live with disabilities, you know, that they shouldn't be alive or that their life is less valuable than yours. Um, you know, we're very, kind of as a society, we're very uncomfortable around people with severe disabilities. Um, we're very uncomfortable around those who are aging and those who uh, have, you know, terminal illnesses. Um, you know, these are things that as pro-lifers, I think we need to be the front line of really picking up the slack and seeing the huge individual, uh, the, the value of the, each individual human being and really dedicating ourselves to, to serving them and committing to them that my life is no more valuable than theirs just because I'm able-bodied and I'm not in a wheelchair or I don't have a cognitive disability um, like some, some other individuals do or just that I'm younger and more healthy than others who are elderly and facing a, a terminal illness. You know, this it has to be it's a society kind of uh, attitude. And I think that we need to be really sensitive to that, to having those tough conversations and even catching ourselves and our friends who have adopted little things like quality of life and, uh, you know, calling people disabled whenever they're persons first who uh, have a disability. Think, things like that we need to be especially sensitive mm. to in this, in this age. That, that's great advice. I just, you know, it's amazing how much changing language will change culture. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for, for being on. Any final thoughts for people? Uh, no, I, I would encourage people to kind of press into this issue um, in a legislative session. This, these kind of ethics come up in several different um, scenarios, several different situations. Um, you know, I know that <clears throat> if um, there's been a few high-profile cases recently that will bring these questions up, um, the Marlies Munoz case from Fort Worth, 
um, has happened since the last legislative session. That should be discussed in the Capitol. Um, this case of this uh, toddler. And that was the woman that was, and that was the case of the woman that was uh, unconscious, and she was her body was pretty much dead, if I remember. But she was pregnant, and they thought that the baby could survive. Yeah. If they'd yeah. left her on, um, if they'd have left her on life support, is that correct? Yeah, yes, and um, without kind of going into all the details of what it was, um, you know, there, that's another case that was very public. There was the case of the two-year-old I mentioned in Corpus Christi. Her name was Natalie Newton, and, um, you know, that I believe that that story will be told in the legislature again. Um, and in order to justify active euthanasia. So I think abuse discussions are going to come at these, you know, where uh, the organization I work for, uh, text right to life. We're going to continue to protect, uh, seek to protect vulnerable patients in several different ways. Um, and so the conversation will be happening at the Capitol, and I encourage pro-lifers to be attentive to that. In addition to seeking justice for pregnant women and preborn children. Fantastic. Have, have there been any bills filed so far that you think people should be looking at? Uh, not in pre-filing. Not in pre-filing yet, but. Uh, yeah, definitely stay tuned, and we'll we'll be able. Maybe we'll be back on to talk about what the session is looking like for us. Definitely, and as soon as we get to uh, we start getting, we've got until really about March before bills start coming to the floor and being voted on. But as soon as we start getting more of those bills coming up, John, I'm sure I'll have you or someone from uh, Texas Right to Life on, and we'll we'll go into more of that. And of course, we'll be having a weekly update on bills coming up very soon, and we'll start looking at some of those that have been pre-filed, what you should be looking at uh, the first part of December. Still hoping to have uh, Scott Turner on to talk about the speaker's race and uh, different things like that. But just one last thing, guys. If you, are, if you are in pain, if you are seeking depression, I mean, if you, are, if you, are, if you have depression, if you've considered suicide, because I have been there I have held the knife to my wrist. I have been at that point where I would rather end it all, but I'm telling you there is hope after depression. There is hope after, uh, after this grief. And that first off, find that in Christ. I, I urge you, search the scriptures. Find, look to him. If, uh, if you, whether you are a Christian or not, seek the scriptures, and I believe there you will truly find answers for this and other issues. We'll continue talking about these, these things. We'll continue talking about uh, difficult issues like this and how to consider them for the upcoming session and for your life in general. Please tune in every week to Twisted Conservative. If you'd like to message me, you can message me at Jason Vaughn on Twitter. And uh, John Sego, you're also on Twitter at John Sego, J-O-H-N-S-E-A-G-O. Any other way for them to uh, follow and get into um, Texas Right to Life? Uh, yeah, TexasRightToLife.com is our website. We'll have legislative updates there um, as we get closer to the session with the pro-life uh, legislative agenda and then updates on how it goes once we start the uh, fun of the 84th legislative session. Great. And when are you done with your master's, by the way? Uh, yeah, so this is uh, my second master's I've been studying on, and uh, so I just started it last uh, this summer, so I'll be working on it till next December. 
Okay. Well, um, prayers for you, brother. I have, I, I'm so glad I did not choose to do that, but I'm glad there are guys <laughs> like you to seek that information out. I'm like, uh, uh, you do that. And I'll come, sounds uh, good. And, Excellent. Uh, thanks so much again, John, and we'll, uh, we'll be talking to you again soon, I'm sure, before or during the session. Great. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right. See you, brother. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Twisted Conservative Podcast. This is your host, Jason Vaughn. Again, you can reach me on Twitter, at Jason Vaughn. That's at J-A-S-O-N-V-A-U-G-H-N. I hope to hear from you very soon. You can email me, uh, at Jason, at txprolife.org. You can also use that website to go to our Pro-Life Texas Facebook page. Engage in the conversation. Leave your comments and feedback. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And I will see you in another week. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving weekend.